It's time for Security Now! Ladies and gentlemen, our May Day episode with Steve Gibson. We're going to talk about something new from BitTorrent that actually sounds amazingly useful. BitTorrent Sync, some security updates too. It's all next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 402, recorded May 1st, 2013. BitTorrent Sync. Security Now is brought to you by Directory Wizards. If you have a need for directory synchronization, Directory Wizards has the solution. Unity Sync. Unity Sync offers a truly unified gal, creating a messaging forest. You can link seamlessly with HR databases or build a backup forest to aid in disaster recovery. There's a lot you could do. Find out more at derwiz.com slash security for an extended evaluation you could download, configure, and put into action today. And by Manpacks. Manly goods on a schedule. Get started today and have underwear, socks, toiletries, shaving supplies, and more delivered to your door. Visit manpacks.com slash twit and get $10 off your first order of $30 or more. Or buy a $50 gift card for just $40. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy online with this guy right here, the explainer-in-chief, Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson. <laughs> he is... Oh, tease me, Leo. We have another Star, we have another Star Trek in about two weeks. I oh. know. I have to throw that at you. Oh, that's good. That's right. This is going to be the... May uh, 17th. Is the, the, the solar date. flare... Uh, Not that I'm counting or anything. The, yeah. the sun flare Star Trek reboot. I'm excited. It looks good. This, everybody's oh, loving the trailers anyway. Well, and J.J. does such a good job with these. I mean, he tur- he's turned them into sort of slow-moving, intellectual, you know, thoughtful sci-fi into real action movies and has uh, consequently really broadened the audience. Right. I agree. Can't wait to see what he does with Star Wars. That's going to be amazing. Isn't it? Or isn't it J.J.? Yeah, J.J. Abrams is, uh, is directing the next Star Wars. Well, how? What, what next one? What how next Star Wars? Oh, you are you're not up on this, huh? So uh, Lucas Luke in his retirement, he's a, a retired Jedi. Well, they uh, Lucas sold the franchise to Disney. Remember that? I don't remember. Okay, so Disney yeah. has already signed J.J. Abrams to do. Ep- uh, I'm not sure which episode it'll be. I do remember that now too. Yeah, yes. and uh, all of the originals will make appearances, obviously as old men and women. <laughs> Maybe Jar Jar could be in a casket. Princess Leia. I did a lot of coke in my um, in my middle years, but I'm back. <laughs> Help me, Obi Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And uh, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. There's something about Harrison Ford. He just he has a crazy look in his eyes all the time. Well, I'm I not right. I'm not wrong. I I watched him on 42, uh, which was a great movie, by the yeah. way. I did enjoy that. That was last Friday. This Friday, of course, we have Iron Man 3 coming out. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to that. Yeah. 
It did really well in its European release. Just made yeah, huge. Yeah, people numbers. are raving about it. There's something about Harrison Ford. Uh, I don't know. It just looks like he's got crazy eyes. There's just something about him. He's scary looking. <laughs> so maybe it's that smile. Anyway, let's get to the. You know, we're not here to discuss uh, Star Wars. Not going to get Harrison Ford in this. In Apparently, the Star Wars. they are. No. Everybody, Luke. Everybody, they're all signed. <laughs> oh. That's the scuttlebutt. Well. Okay, but they won't fun. be the stars. It'll be just like Leonard Nimoy was in last uh, the last uh, Star Trek. They'll all be in wheelchairs. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know that that yeah. Anyway, never anyway, mind. Okay. never mind. No, no. <laughs> let's do a podcast. No, no, no. Let's do a show, and this is a show about security. We're gonna. What are you gonna do today? I think you said. Did you say BitTorrent? I did. Um, we've we've never really talked about BitTorrent except as it relates to. You know, peer-to-peer file sharing technology through the last, what, seven or eight years of the podcast. But they have released something last week, which was, which they began, they began to hear rumors about it a couple months ago in January. And it generated so much buzz among our listeners as relayed to me through, through Twitter that I decided I had to go take a look. And I, from everything I've seen, they've done everything right. This is BitTorrent Sync, and it the compelling aspect of it is that it, it uses no third party. It is not a cloud storage solution. It allows individuals or ad hoc groups to create their own drive synchronization networks using the well-proven BitTorrent peer-to-peer technology, the NAT traversal, the, I mean, all the things that make BitTorrent work, they've moved over into sort of a standalone sync client that is cross-platform, runs on everything. Uh, The security looks very good. Uh, We'll get into it in detail, but um, I think this is a strong contender for a, a great solution for people whose whose need fits what this does. So uh, there was so much interest. I thought, well, let's talk about it from a security standpoint. Yeah, because it could re- it, it could be a free replacement for Dropbox for one thing, right? Yes, um, yes. But we, you know, we got to think about what we're doing here. Yep. This is certainly credit category. Uh, good, and of course, we've got the security updates. Uh, <laughs> Boy, I'm just looking, and and there's one big one that we really want to talk about. Before we do that, let me let me talk a little bit about one of our sponsors, if you don't mind. And the great folks at Directory Wizards, Durwiz.com. A new sponsor for this podcast. You've never mentioned them. You before. haven't heard about these guys, Unity Sync? Oh yeah, let me talk no. about it. Yeah. So what what Unity Sync? is directory synchronization. Now, this is generally something that would be used in the enterprise. Directory Wizards has some very big enterprise clients, including the military in several branches, a lot of governments, uh, governmental agencies, because uh, they have massive directories spread out over a large number of disparate uh, solutions, right? Hardware and software. So what this is, it's a unified gal uh, across... Multiple directory types, Active Directory, Open LDAP, Oracle, Novell, Lotus Notes, and Domino. Remember those? Group-wise. Uh, <laughs> they're around. They're still, oh, well, that's the problem, isn't it? They are around. Yeah. And that's the real yeah. issue for a lot of people is they've got to figure out uh, how to deal with it. So that's what this does, and it's fabu. I would show you, but I'm having a little trouble on my switcher here. Let me, let me, let me get this, uh, this working here. 
I don't have my screen set yet. There we go. Now I can show you the directory wizards website. D-I-R-W-I-Z dot com slash security if you want to have a uh, extended evaluation. You can actually download it, configure it, and put it into action today because there's no scripting involved. It is uh, a web-based user interface, very easy to use. Uh, you can totally, here it is, Unisync, Uni Unity Sync. You can totally control uh, what's going on here. Do all sorts of uh, uh, fancy things like update single attributes. You say, this is the authoritative data source. Update everybody else. Boy, I'd love to have that. Synchronize directory information across different directories. So each directory contains a unified view of the other non-connected directories. Look at all the connection types. Unbelievable. Including SQL. So you could have SQL Server, Access, Oracle, Sybase, MySQL, PostgreSQL, SQLite. And, of course, things like, you know, comma-separated values in LDIF if you're really, if you're really stuck. I think this is an amazing product. I think you want to try this. And look at their list of uh, customers, and you will see that this is used by some of the biggest brands in the world, including the Air Force Command and Control Information System, Canada. 7-Eleven uh, <laughs> uses it. A lot of Canadian Defense Department. Very big there. U.S. Defense Department as well. Um, unbelievable. General Dynamics. You can imagine these these uh, these uh, institutions have just giant multiple heterogeneous databases that they need to major league baseball, NATO, NATO. <laughs> I love it, News Corp. So if it's good enough for these guys, maybe you ought to give it a try. Free eval waiting for you. Directory Wizards is at derwiz.com/security. The product is Unity Sync, and we thank Directory Wizards so much for their support of security. Now, Derwiz. The U.S. Marine Corps, Special Ops, SOCOM, the United States Department of Agriculture, the Wyndham Hotels, derwiz.com slash security. Thank you, Derwiz. Great people, too. Really, really like these guys. So, Steve, um, let's get into the tech news or the security we have news. Some, we have some hacks of the week, uh, as we almost always do. Um, probably people know... Although I didn't mention it last week. I'm not sure if it happened after last week's podcast, but there was a hack of the Associated, Pre the Associated Press Twitter account where someone tweeted, so essentially on behalf of the Associated Press, that there had been a, a bomb at, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And the oh. U.S. stock market immediately crashed. crashed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a spike. It, you know, it recovered a few minutes later after it became clear that this was uh, a false report. It's program but, trading. I mean, it's it's so fast now. It's not a human doing it. It just happens, you know. Right. So there were bots that were monitoring the Associated Press feed, and they triggered on keywords, right. you know, White House and bomb. <laughs> that's, and, that's, sell! <laughs> and immediately, immediately sold off <laughs> yeah. a lot of stock. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, Understandably, okay. frankly. So the lesson here, though, which, which is really important, obviously, is that something that began as just sort of a like, oh, you know, I just had a great hot fudge Sunday, uh, you know, be, has become a major artery for mission critical communications yeah. you know i mean the associated press is sending out uh, you know news 
on their accounts. So this, the security of those becomes important. Right. And this was a group called the Syrian Electronic Army that took credit for last week's hack. Wow. Well, they're back. And this time they claim to have hacked 11 of the Guardian's accounts. They, they, the, the Guardian is, of course, a very large U.K. Uh, newspaper and, and media outlet. Uh, Twitter immediately suspended most of the Guardian's accounts. And then they have been proactive, really, for the first time, where they have gone out and contacted major news organizations around the world who have Twitter accounts and use them for these sorts of purposes and, you know, to, like, work with them to verify their security and explain to them that... This has really become important, yeah. and of course, we do know that Twitter is adding is now there was a there, there was a job offer out, um, I think it was in February, looking for a programmer to implement multi-factor authentication, and we know it's coming for Twitter, so that's all good news, and we're assuming that it's going to be using the standard oath technology that we talked about at length last week. So yeah, I mean here this is the. I, I think what happens is we're seeing a, a common sort of trend again where Twitter was in its infancy years ago. People got accounts and they they weren't important. So they used bad passwords, you know, weak passwords back when they didn't matter. Then over the years, Twitter has become a force to be reckoned with, you know, significant content carried, yet the accounts were never updated. So they're still using the weak passwords that may, you may have been able to justify five years ago. Now you really can't. Now I think you you're know, charitable. I don't... <laughs> I think you're being kind. But, but I think this is how it happens, Leo. This is why somebody still has monkey there's no, as their yeah, password. But there's no it's, reason if you're the guardian to have weak passwords. But my, but my point is that they unless someone says... Yeah. Unless someone goes through and does an audit and a, and a sweep... To like force the and you know an analysis and change, and it's you know everyone's busy. They've got other things to do. So so you know people say how how can this have happened? Well, it's just that once upon a time it wasn't important. You know we, we've seen this with, with with personal computers where people used to say oh I don't really need any security on my PC because I don't do anything. Nothing's important. You know and then they begin doing their online banking and important things creep in to an environment that never had the security that it needed in the first place. So this is, you know, this is how people get into trouble. Do you think, Speaking, it, do they, did they say that they admit it was a password hack or was there something more sophisticated? The presumption is it was, it was just guessed. Maybe they used social engineering. Uh, they, they, they I think they don't there's really some, I don't, yeah, I bet you, because you just, you should, if you're the guardian, you use strong passwords, even on dumb accounts, as the, if you're going to be the guardian. I think they got it hacked. They, you know, I got, uh, from a friend, I got a direct message, it had to be, because it was somebody I followed, saying, hey, you got to see this, click this link. I clicked the link and it went to T-V-V-L-I-T-T-E-R.com. And if you look up close, you know, you don't look closely, it looks like Twitter. And ah. and it had a Twitter login page, <laughs> and now I wasn't fooled by it, fortunately. But I yep. bet you people are routinely fooled by that. And I think that there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of stuff like that. I really do. Yep. Yeah. So I. So, who knows? We don't know how they got hacked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Living Social also got hacked. Now in this case, it was a loss of their entire database. <laughs> 
50 million names, email addresses, birth dates, and encrypted passwords. Unbelievable. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, the good news is that the financial information was stored separately, so it was not taken. But this was a full breach of their database with 50 million of their their subscribers, their users' uh, content stolen. So everyone is, was advised to, to change their password. Of course, are they forcing them? This is similar to it's happened now several times to d- various people, but. Yeah, and it did. I what I read was they were advised to change mm. rather than. I mean, and that that's the same the same thought that I had, Leo. Was it didn't look like all passwords were immediately, um, you know, rendered obsolete and 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 they were required to change them. So that's what happened like, with Dropbox and Twitter. Uh, yep. It's it's what they said was happening with Voodoo, but um, Voodoo asks you to log in with your regular password first. <laughs> So, I know. Oh. So I'm not. I'm thinking that's not exactly the same. You can call it a password to force change, but not really. Right. Yeah. So right. Um, we'll see. So there was something in the news that a number of our listeners sent that I it was worth I thought sharing, and um, it was it was covered by a number of outlets, uh, and I found the like the best story in by Ryan Gallagher in Slate magazine. This was a couple days ago about the FBI's decision to urge legislators to change the law to allow fining internet companies who who resist the FBI's requests for for essentially, you know, monitoring people of interest. Mm. Um, and I would paraphrase this, except Ryan drops a bomb t- toward the end of this, and I just, it, which took my breath away a little bit. So I just thought I would share this. It's not very long with, with our listeners. Ryan wrote, bad news, and this is in Slate, bad news for telecommunications companies. New details have emerged about the FBI's efforts to upgrade its surveillance powers. And the Fed's latest idea is to heavily, and get a load of the formula here later, find firms that don't comply with eavesdropping requests. Last month, I reported that the Bureau said it was having a hard time monitoring services like Gmail, Google Voice, and Dropbox in real time when attempting to spy on criminals. The FBI's general counsel, Andrew Weissman, revealed in a speech that a, quote, top priority, unquote, for the Bureau in 2013 was to reform surveillance laws in order to force email, cloud services, and and online chat providers like Skype to provide a wiretap function. The 1994 Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, that's C-A-L-E-A, CALEA, already allows the government to mandate Internet providers and phone companies to install surveillance equipment within their networks. But it doesn't apply to third-party providers like Google or Facebook, which has led the Bureau to claim that its ability to monitor suspected criminal conversations is, quote, going dark. And FBI, of course, famously refers to it as the going dark problem. Now, according to the Washington Post... The feds have prompted a government task force to draft a proposal to update Kalia in the 1986 Wiretap Act to put more pressure on companies that do not currently fall under the scope 
of those powers. This could involve, the Post reports, quote, a series of escalating fines starting at tens of thousands of dollars on firms that fail to comply with wiretap orders. If a company fails to comply with an order in a set time frame, it would, quote, face an automatic judicial inquiry, which could lead to fines. After 90 days, fines that remain unpaid would double daily. So <laughs> I don't think that's double. so different, though, from, uh, say, contempt of court fines at the, ju- at the judge's discretion. If you if you get a a court order, which they're saying this is a wiretap order, right? Yes. If you get a court well, order and ignore it, you you're always subject to contempt of court, and the judge can the, determine that. The problem is the technology, though. One one of the things that differs here between what was done before was remember that the the internet service providers were paid to have this equipment installed. Right. And uh, apparently here the idea is that they will that, that these these third parties would be compelled to prov- to comply with the requirement even if they don't have the technological infrastructure in place to do so. Hmm. So the concern is that it that it could force them to implement this in a slapdash fashion even and, before the, there's a subpoena or a or a wiretap uh, Well, they would order. have to be ready for this. Right. You know, and we've are we know, for example, that Google is. We, we, we talked about it last week. Is actively resisting these sorts of things, saying, you know, no, we're we're not going to simply accept. But this. they don't fact, resist court orders. They resist requests. They're they immediately comply on a court order. Correct. Correct. In fact, the EFF has a great page that we'll be covering here in a minute uh, that shows who does what for us. Right. Anyway, I'm just going to finish this real sure, quickly. Sure. It says the FBI's controversial proposal is reminiscent of what other countries have recently considered. Governments in the United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia have each sought similar surveillance authority. Last year, the British government published a draft Internet snooping law that would have enabled legal action and penalties against companies that did not comply with surveillance requests. But the proposal appears to have been killed off due to political infighting and public opposition. Canada's web spy law was also cancelled after an outpouring of criticism. And in Australia, the government's surveillance plans have been delayed. So we're seeing governments having a you know, problem getting these laws through. And, you know, I mean, we're sympathetic to the FBI's need to be able to to watch what's going on in the case of bad guys. And, and we've talked often about the fundamental tension between that and you know, individual civil civil liberties and our feeling of our right to privacy. So finishing, this says, if other countries' experiences are anything to go by, then the FBI's efforts will certainly not have a smooth passage into law. Aside from privacy and civil liberties concerns, the Bureau will face tough opposition from companies concerned about the potential security risks posed by building in so-called surveillance backdoors for monitoring purposes, which can be exploited by hackers. Mm. For that reason alone, the FBI can be sure that not all companies will play ball if it tries to rewrite Kalia in a way that would strong-arm companies into complying with eavesdropping. The CEO of encrypted communications provider Silent Circle told me, the writer of this column, Ryan, last year, for instance, 
that he would, quote, rather shut Silent Circle down than ever allow a back door to be bullied into an or else position. And then here's the coup de grace. In the meantime, however, the FBI does have some options on the table if it wants to spy on Skype calls or get transcripts of G chats in near real time. The Bureau has a sophisticated spy Trojan that can covertly infiltrate a computer to gather all kinds of data, take snaps of a suspect through their webcam, record passwords, and gather logs of conversations. As a judge in Texas disclosed last week in an order denying the tool's use. Well, of course, so, if the bad guys have it, you'd figure the FBI just, hey, we could use so, that. So reading that, I said, whoa, 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 what? And it turned out that Ryan reported on this on April 25th. He said, um, and this is, judge rejects FBI attempt to use spyware to infiltrate unknown, and get this, unknown suspect's computer. And so... Um, and, and so on Monday of week before last, a judge denied an FBI request to install, install a spy Trojan on a computer in an unknown location and apparently like not known to the FBI. And I think the, one of the problems with the FBI's request in this case was it was just too broad in order to track down a suspected fraudster. The order rejecting the request revealed that the FBI wanted to use the surveillance tool to covertly infiltrate the computer and take photographs of its user through his or her webcam. The plan also included recording Internet activity, user location, email contents, chat messaging logs, photographs, documents, and passwords. There you go. So, that, so now we know what this tool can do. As the Wall Street Journal reported, Houston Magistrate Judge Stephen Smith said that he would not approve the, quote, extremely intrusive, unquote, tactic because the FBI did not know the location or identity of the suspect <laughs> and, yeah, that and, seems could fair. Not, and could not guarantee the spy software would not end up targeting innocent people. So anyway, this, uh, this goes on to uh, explain that now we know what the FBI's uh, spyware Trojan looks like and that they apparently have some means. We don't know what. The, the sense I got was that they were going to send an email to an address that they had, and that's the reason that they didn't know who or where it was going to go. So they were, they essentially they wanted to – they were asking the judge for permission to, to infect a, uh, an email account and then get – evidence on who was behind the email account which must have been anonymous and so this would be you know this would de-anonymize them by taking pictures of them through their webcam and also you know rummaging around Here's in the their encouraging hard drive. thing and thank you judge stephen smith of houston the system yes. worked the yes. judge did the right thing uh yes. the the courts had to get involved and this is why those secret courts the fisa courts and lack of court supervision is so scary because well, yes, and, and, and what Google fights is the is they request right. for information and stating in the request that, oh, and you can't tell anybody that we right. asked Patriot you for Act, this. Patriot Act requests. Uh-huh. Yeah. And FISA courts and all that. The secret stuff is what and, – and the fact that this was exposed because a judge – because it's a public proceeding is fabulous. Yes. That's what we want. 
Yes. So it did work some in transparency. this case. Yeah, transparency. Some transparency. Yeah. So, um, and of course, this relates to the 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 prior story by by noting that if in in some cases it is not possible or convenient to intercept the the encrypted data in transit then the FBI potentially has the means to get it at one end or the other of the channel so if you if you get the trojan on the individual's machine then you're recording what their skype is is sending before it encrypts it and sends it out so you know there's that that alternative also great so um paypal has become the latest single sign-on provider uh they announced a couple days ago that they are now too supporting oauth which will be careful to differentiate from oath remember that oath is the standard one-time password technology that we talked about extensively last week and and how it's looking like everybody is is lining up behind you know that single standard and that's really good um but they're supporting oauth which is the technology we've also discussed many times that's for for example where you go to a site and it says sign on with your facebook account um we've we've talked about the concern of oath um, hacking, I'm sorry, OAuth <laughs> hacking, where, for example, if people get used to this, a malicious site could say, sign on with your Facebook account and bounce you, just as exactly as you were saying, to a URL that, that given a cursory observation, looks like it's Twitter.com or Facebook.com, but is, is you know, subtly different. And prompt people to enter their username and password. So there's some – I'm, I'm a little nervous about that aspect of OAuth. I love the idea of, of minimizing the number of times that you need to create separate accounts across the internet. And I like the idea of PayPal. Now, what's interesting is that I, I watched – there's a video that PayPal has up describing what this is. And they're trying to spin it differently. They're saying, well, this is not a social, uh, you know, a social networking single sign-on. We're a financial payment social sign-on. And so in their example, they've got some uh, like high-end designer baby clothes (laughs) website that that they use in their example. And so they, they, you, you go to this site and you have the option of creating an account with them or log on with PayPal. Mm-hmm. And so it's what's not clear to me is how that's dramatically different from the pay with PayPal, which we've had and enjoyed all over the internet for several years. I mean, I, I love it when I'm going to, when I'm buying something from a site that I may never come back to again. I really don't want to create an account. I really don't want to give them all of my financial information, I would much prefer, you know, bouncing through PayPal and having PayPal transfer the money to them so that so that it's somewhat anonymous. You know, PayPal will, will, will provide, I guess I provide my information. So this is a little bit more like Google because... Yeah. It's a single sign-on. I think that makes cause, sense because you trust PayPal for the payments. We'll take one step further and use it for your login as well. 
Yeah, and I think, though, that because one of the things that's been nice about Google Checkout is that Google Checkout will, for example, also fill in or, you know, populate or provide all of your shipping information. So you don't even have to fill that out, whereas purchasing with PayPal used to be only the money, and you still had to provide yeah, that. But I'm right. sure from this one. video, yes, yeah. and, but I'm sure from this that PayPal will now provide the full population. So this is a little bit more like a response to Google Checkout, which does more of the work for you than PayPal used to. Well, but it's more than that. It's also a response to Facebook and Google's single yes. sign-on. And I think exactly. the, the theory being, well, you trust us enough to give us all your financial stuff. So certainly you would trust us to take good care of your login as well, maybe more so than Facebook, certainly, yep. and, and possibly Google. I bet you Apple, yep. you know, the next one for this is Apple. Yep. Uh, because Apple with iTunes also has all your information. Oh, my goodness, yes. Yep. It makes lots In of fact, sense. In fact, there's been some talk about the next iPhone having more identity features. You know that Apple bought uh, Authentic, the fingerprint reading company, mm -hmm. for more than $300 million. And, <laughs> and, uh, and there's some thinking. I wouldn't be surprised. Some rumors that there'll be a fingerprint reader in the next iPhone. Then now, finally, Apple's passport might actually get credit cards. And suddenly be not only a single sign-on, but authentication, biometric authentication, second-factor authentication. That's nice. an interesting – I mean, if anybody, if anybody could do it kind of in one uh, swell foop, yep. Yep. it would be Apple. Yep. But that's all rumor, and you don't deal in rumor. We don't. We wait. We wait. Uh, um, okay, so that link there, the bit.ly link, mm. uh, you should bring it up before I mention it. <laughs> Because we know what happens. Done. Go ahead. Really nice page. I created a bit.ly link. W-H-Y stands for who has your and then back. So it's B-I-T dot L-Y slash W-H-Y B-A-C-K. Who has your back? And the EFF put together a really nice summary page showing, you know, from their standpoint, we know that they're they're really, really strong, uh, you know, civil, civil libertarian user rights, user privacy protection. And we're glad to have them because somebody needs to fight back so you that bet. there's some balance, balance of power here you in, you know, in, in the inherent tension that we're going to have. Um, there's some interesting little bits here. For example, MySpace. Okay, so I, there are, for those who can't see it, there are six categories that um, companies are rated in, um, requires a warrant for consent, tells users about government for data requests. Content, not consent. Requires a warrant for content. Oh, for content, sorry. Warrant for content. Uh, yeah, thank you. Tells users about government data requests, publishes transparency reports, publishes law enforcement guidelines, fights for users' privacy rights in courts, and finally fights for users' privacy rights in Congress. Now, I just did a quick little summary noting that MySpace and Verizon are zero. <laughs> no stars. Nada. They don't Nothing. do anything they don't do good, good for us. There's only one five, uh, six star, which is two. interesting. There are two. Two. Oh, yeah, um, two. Uh, AT&T and Apple don't do much, frankly. They both get one star. Yeah out of those six categories. The star they get for is lobbying. Yes. Um, uh, four companies, Dropbox, LinkedIn, Google, and Spider Oak, 
are nearly everything. They get yeah. five stars. Yeah. And then the two companies that are six-star winners are Sonic.net Yay. and Twitter. Sonic yeah, so, yeah. located up here in uh, Sonoma County. Very my impressed. Good, my good friend, uh, Dane Jasper, runs it. Wow. I mean, that's not, it's not easy to get six stars on this because you've got to be— very committed to you know, this stuff. He fighting really, fighting yeah. for, your, for user rights in court and, and lobbying Congress. No, that's the only Internet service provider on that list with that kind of record. He's a yeah. small, independent Internet service provider. Um, but not so small, you know. He's he's slowly working his way nationwide, and I'm really I'm really proud of him. Well, I'm I'm impressed. So, if our listeners are curious, bit.ly/whyback. Who has your back? <laughs> Yahoo, he, by the way, one star only in yeah. the fights for user privacy rights in courts. Although that's a good one to have a star. Uh, yeah, if you had to do one, you yeah. know. Yeah. They may not be so you know they're not busy telling everyone what they're doing, but they're you know right. they're rolling up their sleeves when they have to. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, our listeners continue playing with uh, Pro XPN, and somebody tweet somebody assembled an interesting blog post with detailed instructions for configuring iOS's native. Well, not native because it's not part of it, but it's an official cl- Open VPN client for iOS. And so, I also created a bitly oh. shortcut. Yeah, because we I had created- to use PPTP before, right? And, of course, the concern is, even though I would argue that it's not a huge problem that, you know, as we talked about, you could upload someone's captured traffic and pay $200 to Moxie Marlin Spike, and, and he would decrypt, I think that's who it was, yeah, and he would, was, crypt, yeah. he, he would decrypt your traffic for you and give it a couple days. Um, I mean, it's way better in an open Wi-Fi to, to have encrypted traffic with a PPTP tunnel uh, using effectively 56-bit uh, encryption, which is, you know, not enough bits anymore these days, but still it's better than zero. Um, but there, the OpenVPN, the official OpenVPN project does have an iOS client, and this guy did a blog posting where he figured out how to, you know, like the details of the open of, of the OpenVPN config file and so forth. So that's bit.ly slash... I O S O P E N V P N, all lowercase. I O S Open V P N, and that'll bounce you over to his blog post for anybody who's interested. And and then you have the benefit of full Open V P N security, which is state of the art, uh, you know, enciphering and and crypto. That's cool. Uh, Very cool. I had a couple little little blurbs about one-time password multi-factor authentication or as we refer to it here OTP MFA (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, someone tweeted me at SGGRC he said I had to stop using authenticator because over time they kept telling me my codes didn't match Mm. even if I use the original setup key and so I just – I didn't respond to that person. I don't think he was following me, so I was unable just to send him a DM. And, you know, I can't follow everybody because I'm up to about 35,000 followers now. So um, I thought I would say on the podcast in case he's listening. Uh, and for anybody else, if you're using time-based one-time passwords, it's important that your clock is correct hmm. because that's the synchronization mechanism. It's – you know, it's very clever because time, as long as we're all using the same reference, we're all going to have the same time. 
and individuals are then separately responsible for having their clocks correct. But if you do, then suddenly everything works. And your little device, plus or minus the difference in your time, will be showing this, will be generating the same key that somebody else with the same, you know, with, with the same key as yours would generate given the same time. So if you're a day, if you're like calendar is wrong, if you've got the wrong year or the wrong month or the wrong day, then it's not going to work and you wouldn't want it to work. But, but that's something I really hadn't explicitly said before that I thought was important to mention. You know, there's the, there's the sequential code generators that we've talked about, but what's, you know, what, what's in vogue now are the time-based authenticators because they don't require a single central server which the sequential code technology essentially does, they just require everybody is in agreement about what time of day it is. So that's your responsibility. Otherwise, you can't authenticate. But, you know, generally that's pretty easy. You know, cell phone systems have that built in. GPS has that built in. You know, you know there's NTP, network time protocol on the Internet that allows your computers to synchronize. I mean, it's, it's hard not to know what, what time it is. Maybe what day it is is sometimes confusing, but pretty much what time of day. really know what time it is? Yeah. Anybody really can. And then a really interesting comment was somebody asking about reusing their Blizzard authenticator. And that, brings up, that brought up another point that I had never discussed explicitly was here's a problem. You know, we're, we're talking about we, we, we talked about there was one that I ran across last week that I shared that I liked. It was an iOS application because it showed you all of your different oath, O-A-T-H, the one time, the time varying one time passwords, the six digit guys changing at once on sort of a big scrolling screen. And notice, though, that every provider has their own. So you'd have one for Apple, you'd have one for Microsoft login, you'd have one for for Blizzard, you'd have, you know, blah, 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 one for Google, of course, and one and so forth. Well, so he's saying, well, hey, wait a minute, can't I reuse my Blizzard authenticator? Well, the now we're back into the sort of the equivalent problem of reusing the same password on multiple sites. The problem is that if you if you did allow a physical like a single instance of authentication to be used on multiple sites then that would require that you gave the same secret key to all of those sites so all of them could simultaneously predict the same code showing in in your in your authenticator, whether it's Blizzard or, or whatever. And the problem with that, of course, is that if one of them got their 50 million user database stolen with everyone's authenticator master secret, then suddenly they could attempt to use that to log in, to impersonate you on any other sites that, had the, that were, you were sharing the same secret with. So we know that's a bad idea. the the model the the the, the model that this is obsoleting 
effectively is the VeriSign model where, where only VeriSign knows the Blizzard Authenticator Master Key and then everybody who wants to authenticate to you asks VeriSign if, you know, like, is this the proper token? VeriSign looks it up and says yes, but no one who wants to authenticate gets your master key, only the result of a test for equality. So, but that, but the good news is that's not the model that has that has ended up being dominant. I think that's good because I just didn't like that concentration of power and the fact that it was very expensive to ask VeriSign to do this. I mean, you know, they've got a lot of infrastructure they have to support. It can't be free, and it really isn't. So here. You the, at the cost of every single person you want to authenticate receiving a separate master key or negotiating with you a separate master key. The beauty of that is, even though you've got a scrolling list of of authentication codes, none of them are the same. And if if any of any one or two of them did happen to leak all the rest of yours are still safe. So you really don't want to share and reuse those master codes. You want to, you know, it's easy to make them and it's kind of fun to have them all on a screen changing at once. So, <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. And yesterday was a big day, Leo. Yes, I know. Historic, it, even. Historic. And did you look at the page? It was The, the site was down so most of yesterday yeah. and it's up now. You mean so it's, you can, it's it's still online. It's not like an archive. This yes, is... they brought it back they, oh, that's for neat. for the twentieth anniversary. So you'll want to click there and poke I around did. a little bit. It's open. Okay, yeah. Yeah. it's open. So this is the the this is the twentieth anniversary was yesterday of the world's first World Wide Web site, the first web page, and a and it's sort of I mean it is it's exactly what you'd expect. It's mostly text. I think it's all text, in fact. And it's this is a hyperlink. If you click the hyperlink, then you'll go to a different page. <gasps> and, uh, you know, anyway, anyway, it's remember it's that we were using Archie and Gopher when this came out. In fact, it was Gopher that this was kind of the most like, except that right. you could use a mouse and click a link. Yes. Yeah. Instead of. Picking an yeah. item from a menu. So twenty years it's been. It's very, wow, very gopher-like. <laughs> twenty years. That's a, that's amazing. It really is. So, our askmrwizard.com has uh, asked me to let everyone know he just finished another eight of his animated videos, and this is a very cool classic security now series. Back on episodes twenty-five, twenty-six, and twenty-seven. So this is February 2006, not long after the first web page was created. Uh, <laughs> it was close. <laughs> uh, and I shudder to remember what my website looked like. Um, this is episode 25 was How the Internet Works, part one. Oh, neat. And those were three classic episodes, 25, 26, 27. And uh, Bob is going to fully animate all three of those episodes with a large series of video because he considers that every that this was the foundation upon which so many of our subsequent podcasts have been based as we've talked about the technology of the internet and how it works and and what happens when it doesn't and so forth. 
So it's askmrwizard.com. There's a link there, or you can go slash security now to go right to the security now page. And it's episode 25, How the Internet Works, part one, and a bunch of of videos there. Um, And I just thought I would update everybody on my own research uh, that I've been working on the last week on certificates. Um, You know, the the public key infrastructure certificates. Um, I've been continuing to do research following the release of, of GRC's fingerprints page, which is become very popular. We're getting about 1,500 users a day, so it's sort of settled down to that. Um, the idea being, remember, that this allows you to check the, the fingerprint hash of, secure, of certificates that you receive from remote webs, web websites from your vantage point and compare them to GRC's vantage point in order to detect anyone who might be intercepting your connections. Um, one of the things that I realized, I think this was, I may have mentioned it last week, but I wasn't sure about it. I remember, you know, this was beginning to rant on Internet Explorer last week, and believe me, they ended up deserving it, is the potential power of extended validation certificates. The EV certificates are those ones that all the browsers give extra attention to. Uh, GRC is an EV site, and in fact, probably by this time next week, we will be 100% SSL. I'm going to make the switch to HTTPS everywhere, uh, essentially force the display of all of our pages to, uh, to, full, to fully secure, just so that you always know that GRC should be EV. That's important because for browsers that have not totally screwed up extended validation, and as far as we know, only Internet Explorer has completely rendered it useless. <laughs> all but all the other, I know it's unbelievable. But uh, but I have I've read the source code of of Firefox and Chrome slash Chromium, and they both did it right. Ah. We. We have every reason to believe that Opera has done it right because they're really security conscious. And I assume that Safari has, but I have not been able to verify. The problem is, both in the case of Opera and Safari, I don't have the source code and I don't have good contacts to like the actual guru who could tell me what they're, done, what they're doing. I've reached out to Opera but haven't heard anything from them. Um, Can you but- presume because they're using WebKit that – Whatever is in WebKit, which Chrome uses also, as well as Opera and Safari. No. No, it's something on top of. Yeah, what Chrome does, Chrome has an explicit policy of using the security foundation of whatever platform they're on. So, for example, Uh. when when you're in Chrome on Windows and you say browse certificates or like show me certificate information, you get the Windows certificate UI that is identical to what Internet Explorer shows you on Windows. If you're in Chrome on over on Mac, uh, on, on, on the Apple Mac platform, OS X, you get exactly the same dialogues that Safari shows you. So what, what the Chrome guys have done is they've tried to use the existing security and certificate infrastructure. Now, in the case of Windows, Chrome 
did the right thing. So here's here, here's what's going on is the the way extended validation certificates are supposed to function is they're supposed to actually mean something. I mean, they're supposed to. The, <laughs> well, that seems fair. <laughs> wouldn't it be nice? You, 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 they certainly are. They mean a lot to my pocketbook because yeah. I'm paying for them. Yeah. In in response to that, there is much. There's much more verification of my and my company and my website identity going in before. In my case, Digicert uh, checked me out and validated me and issued an extended validation uh, certificate. They are. They are always for a shorter length of time. You cannot get them more than two years. The actual policy recommends one year, but it's like, oh, no, please don't make me do this every year. So it is, it is two years, um, but no, no longer than that. The, the weaker form of certificate is, a, is typically called a DV, domain validation. And there are even some like Start SSL is a certificate provider that'll just give you a free one for a year. And they just sort of say, okay, put your thumb on your wrist. Do you feel pulse? Okay, good. You will send you a certificate. Um, so, you know, we would really rather have more verification than that. Extended validation is that. But the question is, how do we keep it from being spoofed? And what is so cool about both Firefox and Chrome for sure, um, but absolutely definitely not for Internet Explorer, is that they have in their code, in the code of the browser, is the, the hash of the, of the EV root at the at the beginning of the chain of trust that signs the certificate. So in order for the green EV to turn on in Firefox and in Chrome, and that's Chromium, whether it's over on Safari or Linux or, or anywhere, because it's built into the, to the code. I've carefully read the source code in, in Chrome, is there's a, there is a, a, a serial number, it's called an OID, an object ID, uh, identifier, in the EV certificate, for example, that I have, that I received from Digicert. Firefox looks at this OID, this object identifier, and then looks up in its internal database. That is, it explicitly does not use the public key infrastructure. This is this is outside of PKI because, unfortunately, we can't trust PKI enough. It is subject to manipulation. For example, somebody could, could put fraudulent certificates in your root store of your computer, and we know that happens. Um, in fact, two AV utilities, Bitdefender and Kaspersky, do this. They intercept all SSL, you know, HTTPS communications on behalf of their users and all EV verification disappears because, because they're in the connection and the certificate that the browser receives is not the authentic one. So that's one of the consequences of using those features in those AV tools. But in, but in this case, for example, with Firefox and Chrome, they... They verify the hash of the of the root signer of the chain of trust of the certificate, and only if it matches will they turn this on. By comparison, Internet Explorer, 
is broken completely. It is useless. They, there, are, there are pages on Microsoft's site showing companies how they can give their own websites extended validation green coloring just by clicking a few buttons. What? Yes, it's unbelievable, Leo. It's like, oh, look, everyone wants to have EV. So Simulate it. it. It is. It's completely broken. That's horrible. So, it's unbelievable. It's like, oh, wouldn't you like to have that on your intranet site? And one one of the our great contributors uh, in the GRC news groups did, in fact, run a simulation of creating a fraudulent certificate and got IE to turn green with a, a certificate that he made himself. Self. So it is. Com- yes, it is completely useless. Internet explorers. Indication of extended validation means nothing, unfortunately. Wow. wow. Yet, fi- the good news is Firefox and Chrome did it right. And I would love to hear if there's anyone who has contact with Opera, I'd love to know what they are doing. And the same goes for Safari. Um, we, you know, we have to assume nothing until we know for sure. But, but Fire, so the point is if you're using Firefox or Chrome, and this shows green, then what you are guaranteed of, you don't even need fingerprint matching. In those browsers, you are guaranteed there is no middleman. There is no man in the middle. There is no interception of your traffic. Now, the problem is not everybody is using extended validation yet. The good news is banks tend to be. So you may find that your bank is. GRC is. So if you're using those browsers and you go to my site, to GRC, and you go to the fingerprints page, I am now showing which sites use EV. So, so the point is the, the problem is since not everyone's using EV, you don't know if you should be getting an extended validation indication from any random website you visit. But you can go to GRC, to the fingerprints page, put in the site – Bring it up, and I will show you if that site should be extended validation. And then if you go there, you absolutely want your browser to show you extended validation from that site. And if it's not, then something is in the way. And if you're using Internet Explorer, don't bother with any of that. That is broken. Well, that, okay. So uh, Microsoft's been making, and this is Internet Explorer 9 and 10? All of them. It's, uh, so, I think, from 7. From 7 on, they brag. There's, like, all kinds of links showing you. And I, I'm, I'm going to do a full page to explain this and, and cover it on my site. And I will link to these things where Microsoft is saying, oh, wouldn't it be fun to have extended validation on, you know, on your own web servers? Here's how you do that. And essentially, you can just make some changes to the registry to declare your own certificates as EV and then IE turns green. Wow. Which means it means nothing. It's completely broken. That, that's a really uh, strong argument against using IE, i got to say. It really is. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is, it's, it's awful. Yeah. Unbelievable. And finally, uh, I keep seeing people asking about recovering SSDs um, with Spinrite. And so I, I, ran, I, I found a great testimonial where... Uh, Robert Osorio, who's a listener of ours, um, asked the question and 
and and refer to the podcast. So I just wanted to share this once again because, you know, he does a great job of covering it. And he said, Steve, just to let you know that you can add me to the list of Spinrite users who have found Spinrite useful for reviving SSD drives. I'm an IT consultant and have been using Spinrite for a couple of decades. So, yes, back actually before the first web page existed, that we had Spinrite because it is more than 20 years ago that Spinrite 1 was created. And he said, I have an older Intel X25-M SSD drive that was the boot drive from my main workstation. I recently upgraded to a much faster SSD and relegated the old Intel drive to a laptop. However, in, in time, I started getting OS issues that on a spinning drive would have indicated bad sectors and would have had me running Spinrite on it immediately. Since this was an SSD, I thought all I could do was update the firmware, which I did, and did, and it did help for a while, or just write off the drive. Then I heard you mention on a recent podcast that running Spinrite Level 1 on an SSD could help, so I gave it a shot. It made a dramatic difference, and now this drive is running smoothly. Hmm. I have now run Spinrite Level 1 on all my SSDs and will continue to do so on a regular basis for preventative maintenance. He said in parens, I religiously run Spinrite Level 4 on all my spinning drives every six months or so as well. He said, I did want to get a clarification from you, and I'm sure other listeners would appreciate this as well. You recently read a testimonial from someone who'd recovered an unreadable flash drive using Spinrite on Level 2, and you indicated that was a valid procedure. Am I correct in assuming then that it's okay to run Level 2 on an SSD or flash drive for preventative maintenance? Or should I use level one for preventative maintenance and level two for data recovery only? My concern is avoiding excess writes, which would prematurely wear out the memory cells, thus your admonition against running level four on solid state media since it performs aggressive writes. Reading from your documentation, it appears that level two is only performing writes if it recovers data from a damaged sector and then has the day and then has the drive relocated as such it seems that level 2 is not much more aggressive on writes than level 1 and should be safe to use on a regular basis on SSDs thanks again for a great product and a great podcast and yes robert that's exactly right so level the, the difference between level 1 and 2 is that 1 is prohibited from ever writing I just sort of thought back in the dawn of Spinrite that that might be useful for some reason. <laughs> like, like you know, you could th – there were instances back then where if a drive was really misaligned, then writing could, could rewrite the data in the misaligned location and cause more trouble. So – I thought, well, let's just, you know, have the option of an absolutely read-only phase. So one absolutely will not perform a write command on the drive. But level two is essentially the same. It does a read pass of the drive. And if there's a problem, 
it performs data recovery and will then rewrite the recovered data and, and only the recovered data back into that location. So it is very gentle on SSDs, and that's what I would recommend, actually, over level one. You do the reason he got an improvement with level one was that running SpinWrite on the drive, as we've discussed before, showed the SSD that it was having problems and allowed the SSD to fix itself and perform hidden relocation of its sectors. And in his case, it wasn't necessary to perform any writing to it. It just sort of said, look, wake up. You know, here's what's going on. It's time to take some action. And the SSD did. But level two is, is generally what I would recommend. And, uh, and it does perform recovery and even speeds them up. There you go. From the horse's mouth. I mean, no one knows how SpinRite works better than that guy. He wrote it in assembly language, my friends. Yep. So uh, I'm very interested in this new uh, BitTorrent sync. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Yep. Uh, briefly, just want to interrupt, you know, not, not, a, not a long interruption, but I just want to talk a little bit about man packs, getting your underwear by mail. We were talking earlier about getting your coffee by mail. Man, <laughs> man packs lets you get more your coffee your underwear all sorts of stuff by mail you gotta love that uh, on a schedule now i have it every three months i think that's a good schedule it's not just uh just not not just underwear although even just getting uh, three pairs of socks every three months is a really is a boon it's still not clearly a why you're going through so much underwear but we'll <laughs> i like we'll fresh underwear you know yeah. jerry lewis changed his never wore his socks pair of socks twice did you know that yeah just toss them out just tossed them out that was a kind of weird thing um you can you know you can uh, you have what i do is i have a standard order that i uh i have automatically sent to me but you can of course go into your order anytime change that uh, see see what else you know. I've got shaving cream and stuff like that. Let's we'll go look at the Man Packs catalog. See all the different things you can get. Wait a minute. That's uh, let's visit the shop here. Um, boxer briefs, boxers or see that's good. That kind of they say, are you boxers or briefs guy? Well, you can say no. I'm a boxer brief guy. You can get both uh, shirts, t-shirts, socks, grooming items, shaving, all that stuff. I love it. And uh, what's great is every three months, I get my man pack. It's kind of like Christmas every year. Good gift for a man in your life as well. Here's the uh, Twit exclusive. We'll get you $10 off if you go to manpacks.com slash twit. $10 off your first order of $30 or more. Or when you buy a $50 gift card, you can get uh, that for $40. Man packs, that's actually a good gift. Give, give somebody in your life. Look, I gave you $50 worth of underwear. Manly goods. <laughs> Manpacks.com. So BitTorrent, we all are very familiar with. It's, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes people think of it as a pirate service. That's not the case. In fact, when we first started doing podcasts, this show and uh, Twit, we, we distributed them via BitTorrent because I couldn't, yep. you know, support the bandwidth for the thousands of downloads. Still is uh, probably the number one way Linux distributions are sent out. But it's also used for piracy. And I think BitTorrent is at great pains to kind of shed that image. And they've been adding some interesting uh, features, and this is the newest BitTorrent well, Sync. Well, there, yeah, there, there's a BitTorrent Labs that sort of works on various projects that are that are related to their technology and and leveraging the the wealth of experience that they have with with peer to peer problems. We've talked about 
some of the challenges associated with with, with hooking up two machines in a on a in a direct peering relationship located anywhere on the internet. You know, you and I are conversing right now right. over a, over Skype, which is a peer to peer network. Good point. And 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 we're we've established a direct UDP protocol connection between our two computers, despite the fact that we're both behind NAT routers. Now we did learn that it is better to map a port through right. and assign a static port so that we avoid the sometimes necessary relay of our traffic, which results in you know far, far less useful um, connections between us because of just latency in a real-time stream that we need in order to have the quality th that we want. You really want to minimize jitter, and so a direct connection is the way to do that. But it is a challenge to establish a, a direct point-to-point -point connection in the, in the modern network. If, in fact, the Internet was different, if, if it turned out to be the way the original designers intended, where every endpoint on the net had its own unique IP and there were no NAT routers, then this problem would have been much easier to solve. But that's not the way things turned out. And, in fact, we talked a couple of weeks ago about an ISP that's going to be moving um, – by def by default, a large class of its users behind a their own you know ISP level NAT router. So the idea of NAT traversal is of increasing importance. Um, what BitTorrent has done, and this is the reason it's exciting to me, is is they've done this in several places from a technology standpoint. I think exactly right, which is what they have made available absolutely free. There's no gotchas. There's no we want to install McAfee security scan or the ask toolbar or any of that nonsense. That um, This is absolutely free. Uh, I should mention it's currently at alpha stage, although upwards of 20,000 people and more are using it and loving it. They've got an active forum. So so remember, it is still in its early stages. And even since its first release, it's acquired a bunch of additional features. So features are still being rolled out. What I love what I like about this is that what you download is absolutely independent of any third party. This does not require a, a phone home to BitTorrent or to anything. It is a it is a freestanding peer-to-peer client which leverages all of BitTorrent's proven technology adding a layer of security that that of, of explicit security that I'll talk about in a minute which has never really been important for for the normal public BitTorrent network because you know it was all about sharing files with people you didn't know and it was you know, it was it was on you to make sure that what you got was not malware and what what, what it was what you were looking for. So, in their in their explanation of this, they explain that it is unlimited, secure, and I'll we'll, we'll define some of these terms here in a minute. But unlimited secure file syncing, um, useful for remote backup, useful for transferring. Large folders, I mean unlimited size folders of personal media between users and machines 
editors, collaborators, whatever. And I'll explain what the security model is and what the granularity model is so that people understand how much flexibility they have. I think this is going to be a win. I think this is going to be very popular. Um, well, and it's did, free, which I think is... And it's fast. The reports have been, this thing screams. Really? So, and... It, well, and there's no cloud involved. So unlike Dropbox, it's not going somewhere else and then having to come back so, down. Well, but I also don't have to worry about somebody else having it. Precisely. Nobody else ever sees it. So um, I'm in contact with with the guys there. Um, they're aware of this podcast. I've had some interchange just this morning back and forth uh, with, with the right person. What what. I don't yet have is the full technical readout of the uh, at the at the level of detail we need. I gave them the example of LastPass, where you know Joe was so forthcoming. I, we got the complete technical readout on the technology, so I was able to audit it. People, you know, we were able to look at it and say, "Yes, I can bless this. This is absolutely done right. This looks like it's absolutely done right." and I think we're going to get we're we're going to get all of the technical details because they seem very willing to share that. So I don't yet ha I don't yet have that. I'm installing it now, and uh, it, you can either do the standard setup or say I have a secret. Yeah, secret we'll because you set it up on another device. This is this is really elegant. I think this is oh boy. I know Leo. It's going to be a great solution. So so you keep playing with it, and I'm going to keep. Uh, yeah, I'll have it installed by the, the time <laughs> you're finished. Here. Oh, so, I just showed a secret. I should go back. Should that's I all get right. A different... Because you, it's okay. You can spin. You can spin those anytime you want. Okay, yes. I'm going to make a new secret. Um, <laughs> so they have. They um, uh, so they 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 talk about how it's a. a uh, unlimited and fast file syncing. They they compare it to Dropbox, but secure. Dropbox, of course, is famously eh, not so much. Uh, no third party, no storage limits, no limits of any kind. I should mention, I did see a mention of a million files. Um, okay, like that's a, probably in, enough. <laughs> that's enough in one folder. I think it kind of begins to bog down and consumes a lot of memory if you give it a folder with a million files. Yeah. But but fundamentally no limit. Um, uh, it is a folder syncing utility. So um, and and they say the bigger the better. It is designed for huge uncompressed files. So I mean it just it just loves big files. I remember seeing that there's a four megabyte blocking factor. So files lower, th smaller than a four megs are just treated as one big blob and they're immediately shot out to all the synced folders when, when, when that file appears in a folder. Files way bigger than that are chopped up into four meg blocks and, we're then, and they're synced at that level. So if a file, if one block of a much larger file changes, only that one four-meg block is resynced. Now, in addition, so 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 the model is that of a secret. Uh, you you mentioned the secret before. You when you are setting up a folder to share, BitTorrent will randomly, pseudo-randomly generate a a large text string, which is the secret. That and there's a there's you know I want every detail and so sometimes they so and, and they're sort of they've made this easy to understand and they've sort of you know dumbed it down for people 
um, on their website. Sometimes they talk about a 21-byte key, which is then base 32 encoded in order to make it readable by people. So 21 bytes is 168 bits, which is like triple DES, uh, but but don't 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 worry about that because this is all AES encryption. Except they use a 256-bit AES key. They say somewhere else. So the secret seems to be 168 bits, but somewhere we somehow we need 256. So maybe, and they talk somewhere about the key being the root. Or that is the secret being the root of the key. So there's another 88 bits we need. So maybe, you know, we just don't know. They could be hashing. They could be appending 88 bits to the 168-bit secret-derived key. It's not clear. But the good news is, it, you know, everything I'm seeing says they have, they have implemented good security. So you, you create this long pseudo-random secret. You don't have to use theirs either. You can use your own, but there the advice changes, and they talk about a base 64 string that should be longer than 40, character, or than, than 40 characters. So I need the technology from them in order to exactly understand what's going on in order to be able to describe it to our, to our listeners who, who care about it and understand this kind of stuff. You get some interesting but, things too, by the way. You get just... The regular secret, but a read-only secret, and then a one-time yes. secret. Yes. Now, and the way presumably those I work, could just change these at any time. So the way those work is a read-only secret is something you would okay. So so first you you create a secret for a folder. Now you then install this somewhere else, or you want to share this with a you, that folder with a friend, so you you arrange to give them the secret. There, there's no username, there's no password, and they make the point, and I agree that these pseudo random secrets are stronger than a username and password. Absolutely, and, and and in fact, this is this is the same technology I ended up settling on for CryptoLink when I was doing the that my. Um, my brainstorming for what I was going to do there, CryptoLink was going to essentially embed a, a pseudo-random key and then also generate one for the user. I mean, that is the right way to handle these kinds of, of, of encrypted connections. So the idea would be you give a you, you you give a buddy the same secret. Now, yes, it's it, it then is incumbent on us about moving that secret to the other person in a secure fashion. So you could use something like AxeCrypt or you could, you know, chop it up in pieces. You could fax it to them, blah, blah, blah. They they talk about Base32, which, which I assume they chose because that's probably case insensitive. They don't say that anywhere. But Base32 means that we would be using five bits out of a character. So probably A through Z, independent of case, gives us 26 possibilities and then zero through seven for example gives us eight so 26 and eight mm, what wait 26 <laughs> math is hard 20, 26 and eight somehow you need 32 um and so uh, and so then so that means that the secrets are probably case insensitive. So you could fax it to somebody, you could, you know, dictate it over the phone, you could 
um, you know, encrypt it using AxeCrypt and then email it to them, you know, get, you know, somehow get that to them. Then what happens is the clients in the network are able to to find each other based on the shared secret. So this is a shared secret technology. Because you've got two BitTorrent sync clients, no matter where they are in the world, if they have the same secret, they are able to find each other. And and the, the traffic that they exchange goes directly point to point between them. So um, and is encrypted using that or using a key derived from that secret. So that was another one of the key phrases I saw that leads me to think these guys did it right. They're not actually using the secret directly. They're deriving the actual, uh, you know, uh, exchange, uh, interchange key from the secret. We don't know how. We it'd be nice to know how. Um, so. So that's the normal full access read-write secret. It's also possible, as you saw, Leo, to give somebody a, they call it a little confusingly, one-way synchronization. That's, eh, that's I mean, what, what it really means is it's a read-only secret, meaning that you give it to somebody and, and they, they use it to synchronize a folder that they have, but it's, it's, it's read only in as which is to say one way sync they're able to their folder will contain everything your folder has but it doesn't go in the other direction they are not unable to change the contents of yours so that's very useful um then the they have what something they call a one time secret which is also a little odd um the idea is you're able to generate it as you know on demand and that one-time secret can be either a full read-write secret or a read-only secret. And that you give to someone with whom you don't want to share the master secret. And the, the limitation on it is that it must be used within 24 hours. Now, from they don't explicitly say it except one place. And, and again, it will be good to have this all clarified. But... What it sounds like is the secret, it's not that the secret, the, the, the key dies after 24 hours, but when it's used, it, it allows the holder within 24 hours to obtain some sort of a master secret copy from the master secret holder, and that does not expire. So... So there also doesn't seem to be sort of like a, a secret management system. I got the sense that if, for example, if, you're, if you ever wanted to rekey, you would need to change the master secret on all of the folders that you wanted to keep synchronized. That is, so there's no way to like revoke somebody's rights, which I think is a reasonable trade-off. The system could get very complicated pretty quickly. You can synchronize as many folders as you want. You are able to exclude folders and files using wildcard pattern matching in a, in a file that you put in the folder saying, you know, and, and so the client will see that and, and not synchronize files that you specifically tell it you don't want synchronized either explicitly by file name or by wildcard matching. Um, uh, the, 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 there is an advanced tab um, that gives you 
the ability to enable or disable universal plug-and-play management of your router. So, so as is the case for the normal full-strength regular BitTorrent client, um, the, Bit, the BitTorrent sync client is able to communicate with a UPnP-enabled router and ask it to open a port through to it to, uh, to help with NAT traversal. Um, uh, but you can disable that if you like and set up static port mapping. You can, you can assign BitTorrent a, point, a port to use and, and set it up that way. Um, it is cross-platform. Oh, I, I should also mention that you, you can establish explicit bandwidth throttling. The, the normal case is just to use all the network bandwidth. People in the forums have talked about setting it up on their LAN and experimenting with it, and they, and they drop you know monster files in a folder, and it just bang, a- appears in the other machine almost immediately. Small files are instantaneous, and in one case, a 3.5 gig file took a minute or two to transfer. So um, clients on the same LAN will discover each other using a, a LAN broadcast if they, again, all tied to the secret. The nice thing is this, this sort of the, the secret is the master key for this global BitTorrent sync network. Um, and, and that's the way um, everything is glued together. So you do have bandwidth throttling separate for uploading and downloading. If, if for example, you just want your, your data not to, or, or, or the, if you're like synchronizing huge files, but you still want access to your network uh, while this is going on, or you're trying to do online gaming or something. We've talked about how network saturation with buffer bloat can ruin real-time gaming performance. So you're able to, to put in a throttle. There's no schedule-based throttling, but those are the kind of things we may get in the future, and I have seen requests for that in the forum. Uh, and no quality of service management yet, but that's the kind of thing these guys are clearly able to do. Um, it's multi-platform. It requires on XP up. It, you have to have Service Pack three um, and only 32-bit of XP. It will not run on the 64-bit version of XP. It will run on both 32 and 64 bits of Vista and and Windows seven. Uh, runs on Mac OS ten from Snow Leopard on. Uh, runs on Linux with kernel 2.6.16 and later uh, for the ARM, the PowerPC, the 386, and the 64-bit platform. So they got that covered. That's good news because um, it means it probably could be ported to mobile devices quickly. It currently it's coming. Yeah, it doesn't it's have any coming. mobile support right now, and that's a no, that's an issue. Yes, although it's on its way, um, it is absolutely committed. They are working on iOS, and there will be iOS and Android clients. Yeah. So those are coming, and some. It was supposed to be this week, but I didn't see it because I found a posting from the BitTorrent guys late last week. A lot of people were wanting it on FreeNAS. Um, it is it is compatible with Linux based NASes, but and they have said they have it running on FreeBSD and PCBSD, awesome. which brings it out on, which means that it will be running on FreeNAS. Having it so, on a network attached storage device is very intriguing. Oh, Leo, it's perfect. Yeah. So now, so now, the, so so the idea would be you you stick you it up on FreeNAS, synchronize with each other, yes, offsite and yes. onsite. Oh, this, yes. this is going to really put a lot of companies out of business, I think. 
I think it's wonderful. You yeah. set it up w with network storage. You map a static port through your router. Now, um, now everyone is able to find it. Um, the 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 peer to peer discovery. Uh, basically, they're leveraging everything everything that they've learned from their years of using BitTorrent. I mentioned that a local LAN is able to use uh, subnet broadcasts in order for clients to find each other. Mm. Um, when peers, when two peers discover each other, they then immediately exchange their knowledge of all other peers. So, so the network tends to be strong and 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 robust and sort of self healing. Um, you, if you have a known, like static port, a static IP and port number, you can you can uh, you can use the UI to to set that. So, for example, if if you and I didn't see any support for dynamic DNS, that would be a nice thing to add because many uh, NAT routers will support Dyn DNS, and then you you could use Dyn DNS and a port number so that any roaming clients always could find your NAS at home for for syncing but but so you're able to use it that way they do have a distributed hash table uh, that 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 uh, uh, system within the BitTorrent client network um, and you can also use a BitTorrent tracker in order to help find each other and to act as a oh, how um, interesting you can use a tracker yes <laughs> Wow. And they actually rec they, they recommend that over dynamic hash tables just because it because it's faster, um, uh, and wow. it solves it, it. It helps with NAT traversal. This and is going to be a, this could be a wonderful piracy tool. And as the absolute last resort, yeah, they will relay traffic if really? if there's no if there's if there's no way for two clients to to connect directly, and that's really what you want for for speed. But if if it just if it can't happen, then they will relay their, your traffic, your encrypted traffic for you. They have no idea. They for them it just looks like pseudo random data because everything is is protected by apparently a per session negotiated key based on the shared secret. So I can see people synthesizing really. You know, ad hoc complex networks mm. of arbitrary folders shared among, you know, their devices, their, you know, offices and satellite offices, um, you know, home and work and among their friends uh, simply by generating these large pseudo random keys, sharing those and suddenly your folder contents is shared. I mean, there, there have been times I've wanted to send Jenny something big and it's just, you know, it's just there isn't. A, a good easy way to do that well now there is and it, it's free and looks robust and it looks like they've done security in the right way traffic is encrypted yep so you could you, it doesn't matter where you're using this you don't need a vpn tunnel or anything like that nope um so for example you're at starbucks and you've got this running on your laptop and eventually on your mobile device um, and you simply, you know, you have you're looking at a folder which is kept synchronized to your folder at home, um, and and it's peer to peer over the internet. The finding each other has all been worked out and solved, and you're essentially you're you're creating little independent networks that are not that are not reliant on any you know central phone home uh, headquarters. Wow, is it open yeah. source? 
not open source. Interesting. Um, and I'm okay with that because as long as it's open protocol, you know, I, I mean, for example, you know, Joe at LastPass just was completely open about what he's doing and how it works. And it was because of that that I was able to analyze everything he did and say, okay, I'm using this. This, you know, they nailed it. I don't doubt that these guys have too, but, you know, all the words they're using, all of the phrases and so forth look like they've done it right. But it would be nice to have, you know, all the I's dotted and the T's crossed to know, like, you know, what's the length of this? How are the per session keys derived from the uh the shared secrets and, is and the so, api is there an api i mean could you write an open client don't think there is yet there's not an api and i i don't again remember this is still very early this right. is only a week old it's from their labs yeah yeah and it's yeah, already it only, quite it's mature only, in a way yeah i know it looks great <laughs> i i just installed it uh, what a great way to share stuff uh uh, fast and easily uh, with yourself or others. Yep. Very cool. So you get it. It's kind of a long URL, but if you go to labs.bittorrent.com, I think you'll find it. I just Googled BitTorrent Sync. That'll it'll get you right Got there. Got me right there. Yeah. Yep. Very good. Very a, good. I think we have a hit on our hands, Leo. Yeah. Yeah, and if I were Dropbox <laughs> Mega Upload, <laughs> some of those people, I'd be a little worried. I don't think the... Well, the uh, you know, what, consumer products have to worry too much because this is a little geeky. Once upon a time, the the cloud providers offered the the allure of you know terabytes of storage. Now everybody has terabytes right. of storage. I mean, right. it's not what we need is to get this stuff synchronized, and this provides that. Right. Very neat. Yeah. Uh, Steve Gibson's at grc.com. That's where he hangs out. That's where you'll find BitTorrent. BitTorrent, no. SpinRite. <laughs> There's no BitTorrent there. SpinRite, the world's finest hard drive recovery and maintenance utility. All the freebies he gives away. His passwords, perfect paper passwords, padding and all of the stuff, all the security information. Of course, Shields Up, which you really should use right now for the uh, UPnP tester. I think we're on the high side of 5,000. I, I, we, we were getting close last time uh, I looked like different people who's who had universal plug and play exposed on the public wan side of the network right. so, vulnerable systems yeah yeah uh he also put 16 kilobit audio versions there for people who really don't have a lot of bandwidth it's not the greatest sounding but it's there the content's there and the smallest version is the the, the english language transcript that he offers as well that's at uh, grc.com we have of course larger uh, files the uh, the higher quality audio and video available at twit.tv which is down right now i know It'll be up momentarily. We're just doing a little maintenance. Uh, Twit.tv slash SN for security now. Uh, you can also subscribe. In fact, that's a good idea if you want to get every episode. All the podcast aggregators support security now and uh, all of our Twit shows. Um, we do this show every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC on Twit.tv. So you could tune in and enjoy live if you want. We'll have a Q&A next week. GRC.com so slash feedback for the questions. Yep. Send me questions. Maybe maybe play with BitTorrent uh, Sync. And uh, if you've got some questions, let me know. I will. Uh, I don't know how soon the the guys there will get a, uh, a protocol white paper assembled, but I've got a dialogue open with them, and they seem uh, uh, accessible to that. So I think we're probably going to get that. Cool. Thank you, Steve. What a great subject. Thanks, Leo. 
Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security.